You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Good morning, good morning, good morning out there. I'm going to start with this quote. You know, this is, I've been doing this for about a year, starting with a quote to kick off the show. And this quote is from Isabel LaFletch. Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. Don't you just love that? Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. And that's from Isabel LaFletch. So get going. You guys, can y'all believe we're in the middle of October? For, for our loyal listeners who've been with us, I can't believe I'm saying this, that we're going on 17 years. 17 years started out on the radio and then moved to a podcast. But for those of you who've been with us all these years, thank you, thank you, thank you. People tune in from all over the world, so many different platforms they catch off the shelf. And I just get emails from people, oh, I like the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And for those, it might be your first time ever listening to Off the Shelf. I just want to let you know that, yes, you are listening to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf, and welcome to our October the 15th. This year has gone fast like a freight train. I cannot believe this is October already. So back to our quote, your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up. What is it you promised yourself you would do in January? It seemed easy because you thought you had so much time to get to it. Get to it, get to it, get going, and stir up your courage and get going. And I want to thank you again for joining us. We have a, I'm excited about today's show. We have a wonderful a guest on deck for you this morning, and I'm excited to introduce her to you. But first, I, I just want to, have you noticed, and I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to tell me this. I went to see like a spooky movie and it scared me. And my dad said, real life is scarier than any movie you'll ever see. This is not a spooky book, but it is a mystery. There's a mystery tucked in here. But it also, there are, it, it, this book is is like a mirror of real life events that are happening. And we know real life, it offers us just these deep, complex mysteries that you try to figure out something that's going on in a relationship, what's really happening at work. And then our guest really knows, she has, gets paid to dig out what really happened, what really happened. And real life offers these mysteries. But and, and so books, you can take books and tell real life mysteries in a powerful way. And, in fact, this is what Escaping Toward Freedom does. It's a mystery and a suspense. It pulls us off. Clarissa is a major player in Escaping Toward Freedom. She's a writer, and she's vacationing in the North Georgia mountains. And she is trying to stir up her creative juices again. She's got she got a pair of bills. She's a full-time novelist. She doesn't have a backup career that she leans on. So her last book when she wrote it in these mountains, it was a New York Times and Essence bestseller. So she's hoping she can pull this off again. Well, she isn't in the mountains, and it's so it is anybody who's been there will tell you people I know they love it. It's quiet, it's peaceful. She isn't there two full days when she spots what looks like a girl hiding by her cabin. And so she invites this girl into her cabin thinking she's helping her. This single act changes both of their lives forever. So I encourage you, if you like a mystery, you like suspense, I encourage you to get a copy of Escaping Toward Freedom. It's an e-book and print and hardback. And if you don't see it on the bookstore shelves, just tell the clerk you want to get a copy of Escaping Toward Freedom by Denise Turney because it's carried by the largest book distributors and wholesalers in the world so you can get a copy. Again, Escaping Toward Freedom by Denise Turney. I hope you get a copy and let me know how you enjoy the book. And now let us go and meet our special off-the-shelf guest. And our special guest this morning is Alexandra Shapiro. And Alexandra, she is a criminal defense attorney. Talk about real-life mysteries. An attorney has got to dig and dig and dig. And she is leading you. She is a leading United States appellate. Lawyer, she served as one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Supreme Court's first clerks 
She's also the founder of a boutique law firm in Manhattan, and this is a firm that has handled high-profile cases. Uh, Alexandra, as if that is not enough, she's also served as president of the New York Council of Defense Lawyers, and in 2021, this woman is amazing. In 2021, she sat down and started her first novel. I'm thinking John Grisham all the way, <laughs> I hope she has that kind of success with her books. So the title of her first novel is Presumed Guilty. And you you know they say write about what you know. Well, this is what she's doing, right? So you, I encourage you to check Alexandra out online as, as at alexandrashapiro.com. A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com. One more time, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com. We are just absolutely honored to have Alexandra with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Alexandra. Thank you so much, Denise. Uh, good morning. It's it's really great to be here. I'm honored to be here and looking forward to chatting with you and uh, hope our listeners enjoy the show. Oh, I know they will. I know they will. So the first two questions, Alexandra, I'm going back to when I started off the shelf on the radio with Rainbow Soul, and I just bolted right into the questions about their books, and, and I got emails from listeners saying, don't do that. Give, we want to know a little bit about the guests before you start talking about their books. So the first three to four questions I ask every guest that comes on the show so our listeners can get a little backstory on the guests. So to start today's show, Alexandra, could you tell off-the-shelf listeners what it was like for you growing up in New York? Um, yeah, so I, I'm very much a city girl. I, I grew up in, in the heart of New York City, and, and I just uh, I loved it. I loved all the uh, different things the city has to offer. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it, I love the museums, the parks. You know, there's just – you can't get bored in New York City. So I thought it was a great place to, to grow up. Um, uh, I have an older brother and a younger sister, and I think we all just loved – Growing up in the city, so so you actually grew up in Manhattan. Yes, I did. Um, it was a very different time. I grew up uh, uh, in the, mostly in the 1970s, you know, uh, and uh, so the city was quite different, but still, still really exciting. And uh, I went off to college, and then um, after college, lived in D.C. for a while, came back to New York for law school, went back to D.C., but ultimately decided, you know, I couldn't stay away from the city, so I came back here and and uh, have lived here ever since with, with my own family. So um, I'm very much a New Yorker uh, to the bone. Big New York big Yankees fan, by the way. Go Yankees. Oh, uh, okay. You know what, New York, I've worked in New York. I can't remember when I was a little girl because I – was born in Dayton, Ohio, and lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is nothing like New York. But I used to fantasize about, man, when I get to New York, my whole life is going to be fabulous. I just wanted to get to New York so bad. And so I can remember when I worked in New York, and I worked in New York for probably about a year, year and a half. I took the train up from, from Pennsylvania, but it, it there is a pace, there is a vibe and a pace to that city. Now I was there before COVID, and and there was so much tourist traffic. When I would come home from work, I would walk the 13 blocks to Penn Station, and there was so much people foot traffic that you had to walk in the edge of the street. It was just this city. I have never been in a city where it was that much. Now after COVID, it's probably changed, but that much. People, foot traffic, it was just, that is a city, is like no other city. I've been to D.C. and these other places too, but it, it's New York got that pulse. And it's another thing, and, and I want to uh, 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 extend this, but I would say to somebody who's never visited New York, know where you're going. Now, since COVID, it might be better. I remember when I first got to New York, I was working at Merrill Lynch, and I got caught up in such a wave of people that if I hadn't known where I was going, I probably would have got lost. You just get caught up in a 
everybody's just rushing somewhere <laughs> you're in the middle of this area of people that is that is new york city so you saw so much you see the arts you see businesses it's just there's so much in the city as a kid alexandra what did you dream of being what did you want to be when you grew up you know i had a lot of different ideas um I actually don't think I thought that much about being a lawyer, but um, but for today's purposes, you know, one of the things I sometimes thought about was becoming a writer. And, uh, oh. you know, I didn't do that as a young person, but I, I always loved reading, loved um, reading both fiction and nonfiction. Um, you know, mysteries were some of my favorites as a kid. I loved the Agatha Christie books, for example, and when I was younger, you know, I was really into Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys as a kid. Um, so, uh, so that was definitely always kind of a dream. And then I kind of put it to one side and ended up pursuing the law, but, um, sort of had the good fortune to be able to come back to it in at least a small way by trying my hand at writing a book, um, uh, you know, recently. Well, you know, I have, I have to ask you this, listening to you and answer what, what the question, what did you want to be? What attracted you to law this was was were one of your parents a lawyer? Was a grandparent, somebody in your family a lawyer? What a tra- there's so much work and to prepare to even get, get your 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 degree, your license. What attracted to you to law? And you've you've had such a stellar career. What what attracted you to that field? So uh, it was a couple of things. I definitely um, so my dad um, uh, is a lawyer. He had a long he's retired now he's in his 90s but he had a long career um as mainly as an international corporate lawyer he actually is an immigrant who grew up in japan and speaks a bunch of different languages including japanese and had kind of gotten into this international legal work um uh and so partly it was my dad but i think a lot of it was also i was uh, you know, very idealistic and interested in politics. After college, I worked on uh, Bruce Babbitt's presidential campaign in 1988. That's kind of a throwback. Probably a lot of people don't remember that. But um, but at law seemed to me kind of uh, at the time a, a way to try to find some way in your career that you could have an impact and help um, – you know, help drive public policy and change. Um, obviously, there and there's so many other, so many different things you can do with a law degree. Um, so I would say it was a combination of all of those things that led me to go to law school. Wow. How old were you when you started in law? And 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 was it mostly male? We the the world has changed so. I'm not going to say the whole entire world. There are probably parts of the world that people haven't seen as much change, but I know here in the United States, since I was a kid coming up in the 70s, it is, I, I tell my siblings, I'm in, this is a whole other world. This <laughs> is the world I grew up in. The world we grew up in is so different. So how were you, and was it mostly male? And if so, how did you navigate, navigate that environment? Yeah, so um, I, I would say it was like, it was during a transitional period where women were starting to get a lot more opportunities. And I, I didn't mention this earlier because she didn't practice when I was young, but actually my mom went to law school as well. That's where oh, she had met okay. my dad. But went, back when she went to law school, I think she was one of 10 female students in a class of, you know, over 200 at Columbia Law wow. School. And by the time I got there, it was roughly, you know, 50-50. And um, certainly in law school, although I think probably there were a lot more male professors than female professors in the student body, it was closer to half and half. And, um, but I definitely, you definitely saw the effects that it was still kind of a transitional period. And, and even today, of course, there are many, many roadblocks, but, you know, for instance, when I was clerking um, both for Justice Ginsburg and um, before that I had clerked for uh, an appellate judge on the D.C. Circuit, most of the law clerks were, were men. And, um, you know, uh, so and I, I think, um, you know, some of those challenges continue today. But, um, but it was, I, in all fairness, I mean, it was, I think, very different when I 
was in law school and immediately afterwards then people of my mom's generation or RBG's generation or Justice O'Connor where you would hear all these stories like, you know, Justice O'Connor graduated, I think, second or third in her class at Stanford Law School and no San Francisco law firm would offer her a job except as a secretary. Um, And, you know, Justice Ginsburg, when um, not long after she was out of law school and she decided to pursue an academic career and uh, her alma mater, Columbia Law School, wouldn't hire her because she was a woman. So she started her, her academic career at Rutgers Law School, and then about nine or ten years later, uh, Columbia changed, had changed its policy, and she, she moved over there. But, um, you know, I think – so I think a lot had changed by the time um, I was fortunate to start my career, but, uh, but it's changed even more now, and, and there's much more work to be done, um, both in terms of – um, you know, opportunities for, for women lawyers and even more so for, you know, um, people of color who enter the law where things are still just very unbalanced. And, um, wow. But you, 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 you and I'm going to ask you this later. I just, uh, you, you, you know how to find your grit, your courage, and, and, and go ahead and do what it is you set out to do. Uh, what was it like, and then and, and, and I'm going to ask you, this question in one more, and then we're going to start talking about presumed guilty. What was it like? I have to ask you this for our listeners. What was it like working with the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Ginsburg? What was that like? Uh, experience like? Did you see her a lot, or did you, like, rarely even interact with her? Oh, no. I mean, I basically saw her every day. Um, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, she, I clerked for her the first year she served on the Supreme Court, so – she obviously had a lot of experience as a judge before that, but the, the Supreme Court is different, and so it was it was new to her to be um, be a jurist on that court, and so it was really exciting to to be with her in that first year where she was really learning the ropes, so to speak, in her new job. Um, we saw her every day, um, as is fairly well known. Um, so I'm not giving away any secrets here. Um, the justice is not much of a morning person, so. Typically, the law clerks would would get in much earlier, but, you know, the justice would come in around midday, and we worked very closely with her. We would uh, help uh, uh, prepare uh, bench memos, they're called, um, analyzing the briefs in the cases that were going to be argued. She obviously read the briefs in our memos, and we would meet with her and discuss the cases, and, um, and then, uh, you know, we were also – part of the process of helping her write opinions when she wrote them. And she was, um, she was really great. Uh, she, in a couple of different ways, I mean, one is that as a lawyer, I learned so much from her because she really had the highest standards of excellence in the way she approached, you know, the whole craft of judging and really inspired us to, to be our best in our legal analysis and our legal writing and to be as rigorous as possible. But she was also, um, you know, a really great human being and that you know, she always was interested in our personal lives and, you know, when clerks, uh, current or former, you know, for instance, you know, have a baby, she would send a shirt that said, you know, RBG grand clerk. She was always really interested in that. She would marry her clerks if they asked her. She actually uh, performed my wedding ceremony together with a oh. rabbi. Um, so, uh, and her husband, um, who who passed away a, a few years before she did, was also a wonderful guy. And they sometimes had us to their home for dinner. And he was a fantastic cook. She, Justice couldn't cook at all, but he was great. He was a gourmet chef. And <laughs> so. Oh my God, memories! So you had those memories, and this goes back to I'm on my next question. I'm leading it off with this quote again: "Your passion is waiting for your courage to catch up," by Isabella Fletch. I ha- and then so that kind of segues into this next question, and your responses show you 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 know how to tap into whatever you need to go ahead and do what it is you want to do, and a lot of us don't. So I want to share this. I want to see if I like to share tips on the show that might help somebody take a step forward if they've been struggling for years or decades. Now, I really admire your drive. You go after what you want. That's how you, you, you at the end of your life, you're like, 
I did what I came here to do. I did what I wanted to do. You're like a pioneer and somebody who inspires people. How did you tap into your inner courage to not just think or daydream or fantasize about what you want, but to actually take the actions, reach out to the right people, get the education, the experience, et cetera, to actually do what you want? There's so many of us that struggle with this. Does this come easily to you? And how how do you how are you able to tap in so you keep going forward? So that's a great question, and um, you know I don't know that that it's that easy to answer. What I and I what I would say is is I too like sometimes find it hard to um, to kind of get my act together and and pursue my passions. Um, you know, and and sometimes I have self doubt just like anybody else. I think you have to. The, the first step is really to have confidence in yourself and understand that, you know, no, have a good sense of what, what are your strengths and weaknesses, you know, what are your talents, and, and don't let other people get you down and really just have that inner sense of confidence. And then, you know, you just got to come up with a way to, to, you know, get yourself out there working hard because it's – these things aren't easy and you got to be willing to like work hard and pour time and effort into whatever your passion is. You know, you might have a great idea, for instance, whether it's for a business or a book or, or anything, but if you don't really take the time and do the work to figure out, you know, how to make it reality, it's, it's not going to happen. And you have to just, you know, um, really, really be willing to, to do that. And, and, um, yeah, so I, I think a lot of it is just trying to have confidence in yourself and, and don't pay that much attention to what, how you think others perceive you and really just, um, just be firm in your own, your own merits. Mm, th- thank you for sharing that, the confidence, and don't worry about how others are perceiving you. Uh, v- very good tips because perceptions can change at the drop of a dime as well. Now we're going to get down to what I live. I mean, everything you shared has been just uh, just such such good material. And I, but I want to learn even more now, our listeners sitting on the edge. What inspired you to write? You're an attorney. This is when I'm I'm researching for your interview, and I'm like, wait a minute. She's an attorney. I'm thinking that, that how could she switch, like the left-right brain to switch over to writing a novel? What inspired you to write Presumed so, Guilty? Yeah, so I actually, my first idea was I was going to write a nonfiction book about one of my cases, and um it was a case in which uh, I felt the result was unjust. I felt that my client was innocent. I had represented him on his appeal, and we ultimately lost the appeal, and I felt that there was great unfairness in the way the jury and the courts and the prosecutors had treated him. And I was going to write a story, uh, not a story, but a, a nonfiction book about that case, but it was a very complicated case um, about a, a a foreign exchange transaction. And it, I just thought, you know, how am I going to reach a broad audience with this? Um, and I can make some of the same points about the system um, in a fictional work. And then on top of that, um, it gives me, you know, kind of more creative license um, and I can craft a story that I think will convey the same ideas, but in an entertaining way. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've always loved, um, mysteries and you know thrillers and and I've always kind of had a, a secret passion of the idea of writing a fiction book, but but really never had the courage. You know, to your point about uh, your your quote for t- for today's show, I really never had the courage to kind of actually try to do it. And so when I was thinking about this book, um, you know, I just thought, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna try to write a fictional story instead, and. Um, yeah, so that's that's how it came about. The other thing I, I should give credit to is uh, that I took a course on uh, book writing from this organization called the Creator Institute that was founded by a Georgetown professor, and um, that was fantastic because it plugged me into 
this community of other authors, many of them first-time authors and, um, and editors who were helpful uh, in terms of giving me some, some ideas and some tools uh, for the skill of writing fiction, which is, which is very different from the type of writing I've done in my career as a lawyer. Mm, I can only imagine that. Introduce us to Miss Emma Simpson. What's her background? Is she married, single? Does she have children? What's her relationship with her parents like? What's her background? And what is her personality like? So she's um, a very uh, self-confident woman. She, but she, she, um, so she's married to a guy named Pierre Elise, who was originally French, who she met when she was studying in France as a young, younger person. Um, they had two children who are now teenagers, um, a girl named Sarah um, and a boy named Daniel. And uh, they, uh, so she works at this, this hedge fund in New York City, but about um, five or six years before the book starts, she and her husband decided to move to Dutchess County in upstate New York where, um, you know, they live on this farm um, and they felt like they, it would be better for their kids. And so she has a very long commute every day, but her background is, um, you know, uh, she was always really good at math and that's how she kind of ended up getting into this originally. And um, we don't know too much about her parents, except we do know, learn in the book that, uh, a, a few years before before the story started, that her father tragically died of cancer, um, and um, yeah, so hedge fund. When you say hedge fund, I've worked in financial services for years. That's a tricky one. You can make a lot of money there, and it, you can get real close to a a a, a, a dangerous line if you're not careful with that. Well, any financials, uh, you know, the, the, any of them, you got to really, really, there are so many regulations you have to follow. So when you said that already, the story is interesting. I'm just with my, my, my background. So where and when, where is the city, I mean, the, the story set, where and when is the story set, and why did you pick this time period and this setting for the story? Yeah, so the story set between 2012 and 2014, and most of the um, it's mostly set in in Manhattan. Um, her office is in Midtown. The courts are downtown feature very heavily in the story, and then we also um, have some scenes that take place in upstate New York with the family and some things that are going on with the family, and we learn a little bit about Red Hook, New York. Um, uh, which I'm very familiar with. I used to I used to have a house there and spend a lot of time there, and I'm very fond of it. So that was kind of fun to write those scenes. But um, uh, yeah, and the reason I chose the reason I chose those locations really is that um, is that I made I was able to bring my own experiences to bear in crafting the characters and the shape of the story because I. Uh, I worked in the prosecutor, federal prosecutor's office in downtown Manhattan. I tried a lot of cases in the courthouse that the, the trial takes place in. And, you know, um, and I'm quite familiar with the, the world of hedge funds and other financial institutions that Emma is working in both uh, through my own work um, and, and a lot of clients that I've had over the years who've worked in that industry. And, I, and that time frame is roughly equivalent, you know, to a period, maybe a little bit later than a period in which the Manhattan U.S. attorney at the time was very focused on bringing a ton of cases against people in the financial industry, um, mostly for insider trading. And so um, that was really why I focused on, on that particular time, time frame. You picked a good one because, well, we, we're talking Bernie Maldoff and, the, the the market crash in 2000, late 2008, 2009, and a lot of people were still trying to dig out and recover. Uh, so just so many financial losses. Uh, uh, I forget was Occupy Wall Street. All that was going on around 2009, 2010. So it was still a little, 
little little rugged around that time period. Although the country and and uh, financial institutions were starting to dig their way out out of that. Where you said did you say red? What town is it? Red brick or what? It's, I've never heard called, of it. Yeah, it's a very small town. It's called Red Hook, and it's in Dutchess County. And a lot of people, more people, have heard of Rhinebeck, which is sort of right next to it. Um, which is a little more well known, but um, but yeah, it's, it's called Red Hook, and it's it's uh, you know fairly rural. There's a lot of farms there. Um, it's it's very pretty. Um, yeah. So. Oh, so you, it's not when you think of New York, New York, Manhattan. This is totally different. I'm thinking more like up. So it sounds a little more like upstate New York. How, now, so want to know how did Emma? Okay, two questions. How long has she been working with this hedge fund? And if you already answered, I apologize. But how long has she been there? Is this is this so hedge fund a major? And is this hedge fund yeah. a major player? Um, so so it is. Um, it's not a huge company, but they manage. Um, I don't think we say exactly how much money they manage, but it's it's pretty significant and it's been pretty successful. Um, she's been working there. Uh, about five years or maybe a little bit longer. We don't, we don't know exactly, but, um, but she started her career at Goldman Sachs. We learned that in the book Ah. and then got recruited to, and was excited about the idea of building this, this other company, um, which she got in kind of on the ground floor when, when it was just being started up. Um, So that's sort of the trajectory there with her. Now, how did Miss Emma Simpson become a target? She's been there five years. How did she become a target of federal prosecutors? So these prosecutors are, it turns out, are investigating their fund, and the prosecutors believe that the fund, which has had quite a bit of success uh, with trades in certain stocks, that it's because they've got inside information and they're insider trading. And... Um, what ends up happening is that there's a subpoena that's issued to the fund and, um, and uh, somebody mentions it at a meeting that Emma's at in, in the New York office. And the way it's discussed, it sort of sounds like it's directed at the, the fund's Boston office. And then she has a very busy day that day and um, she's, you know, running around to meetings and between all these different meetings and she's got her long commute. She wakes up at 4.30 in the morning, you know, to take the train down to Manhattan and then she's on her way home. Her kids are texting her and on the way home on the train, she sees that a colleague has written an email to everyone in New York saying, um, we have a computer upgrade coming, so don't forget to clean up your files under the company's what we call document retention policy. Um, and so she just forwards that again and says, yeah, that's a good idea, words to that effect. And the prosecutor, but the prosecutors who are um, looking at the fund, you know, believe the fund's been engaged in insider trading, but they're basically after like a year of investigating, they can't really come up with any definitive proof to, to bring a case, but they find out about this email and they, they believe that she wrote the email so that people would destroy documents that would, you know, provide oh evidence. Of oh my God. So they, yeah. Um, so they no, bring the case, they charge her with obstruction of justice. Um, oh and God. that happens a lot, you know, when prosecutors, there's a crime and they can't prove it. You know, it's kind of like the old saying, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. You know, they, they go to those kind of process crimes if they feel something fishy is going on, but they can't prove the, the real crime. That is scary. That is scary. Has that, has, I got to ask you this. Has that ever, anything like that ever really happened? That is scary. Well, the book is not based on, like, any specific true story. It really is fiction. Um, But, um, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes there are prosecutions that are brought in this area um, where people are innocent and, um, you know, uh, wow. Even no matter that how well-meaning, I mean, prosecutors get 
get very zealous, and like anyone else, I think they're subject to confirmation bias. And so, you know, sometimes if, it, it happens all the time in all kinds of crime, obviously. My book focuses on this sort of white-collar setting. I partly wanted to, to show that if it can happen to someone like this, you know, just imagine how much worse it can be for, for poor people and people who just don't have the resources to fight the government. But I think a lot of times what happens is prosecutors or agents, you know, get convinced that someone's done something wrong. And then instead of, you know, trying to objectively follow the facts, um, they're really looking for stuff to bolster their pre-existing idea. And that's how this kind of thing can happen. Wow. Oh, man, you're making me presume. This, oh, this is like you got to go get this book. Now, have to, I don't want you to get a story away, so maybe if you say, Denise, I can't answer it, then, just, then, you, then don't answer it. I don't want to give the story away. Has Emma, though, without, if you can answer without giving a story away, has she, has she ever crossed the line at a, as a portfolio manager? And is she aware of how corrupt this hedge fund field can be? Is she coming into it naive? At Goldman Sachs, I'm thinking, no, she's not. Is she coming into it, though, is she naive? Does she know how corrupt that field can be? And has she herself ever crossed the line? Well, I think the way she, what I would say is she's pretty squeaky clean, but I don't think she's naive. Um, And, you know, um, I guess that maybe that's that's the most I probably should say. and I guess the only other thing I would say about that is, you know, I, I guess I think I, I partly picked that in, in a, the story where I think it's pretty unambiguous that she's innocent. And I I guess I could have skewed it a little more like where you have doubts, more doubts. and um, But I thought it was for purposes of making my points, it was cleaner to have just like, a truly innocent person as opposed to something where it's a little grayer. Um, so, yeah, I think that's so all. She, she, is, she, she hasn't crossed the line. This almost, when you when you were saying that earlier of how just her responding to that email got her, she became a target, it's almost, it's almost, it's it's scary how easily you can get in. I had a friend who was, who was parked somewhere and I, I forget something she was accused of doing. I don't know if it was a hit and run. And she said if her father hadn't been there and he didn't know, he, he wasn't an attorney or anything, but he knew better how to respond. She said, oh, my God, that could have turned really bad fast. <laughs> so it, yeah. she, she, had, she hadn't even done, she was just in the area, but she didn't hadn't done it. She said that scared her so bad to see how quickly something can turn so fast. Now, can you tell us about her boss? We know Emma; she's walking the line. But what is her boss like? And this hedge fund—I I keep thinking to myself, there's got to be a reason why prosecutors are looking at them. Yeah. So, so we don't learn too much about the boss, except that he pretty much drops her like a hot potato as soon as um, the uh, things hit the fan. And um, on the one hand, you know, that's pretty bad. On the other hand, it's pretty typical if, if someone gets charged um, with a crime that, you know, usually they end up getting fired even if the company, you know, and everybody starts running for the hills because the company's trying to distance itself from her. And I think we have kind of a lingering sense that even though the government couldn't come up with the proof that maybe there is something fishy going on in in other parts of the hedge fund and and the 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 Boston office which the her boss is really who's head of the whole thing that's where he's based so um so I think we get kind of a somewhat negative picture of him ah uh, okay okay now you do you do in the book for far readers if they go, I know you can go like Amazon and get the uh, read search inside the book and see some of the the front pages. There's sketches and, and presumes guilty. I had to ask you, did you do those sketches? Are you also like an artist? 
as well? I wish. I wish. No, that that was not me. Um, and um, the uh, uh, so the um, the sketches were done by a young woman named Erin Peterson, um, who I was introduced to through kind of a friend of of my daughter's. Who's my daughter's a college student and. Uh, um, Basically, what I, the story of the sketches is that I don't, I don't really know what made me think of it, but I, I got the idea that it might be kind of fun to have um, little drawings uh, here and there in the book. And I had, you know, years ago, I've, I've read all the Harry Potter books. I'm a bit of a Harry Potter fan, and I remembered that one of the nice touches in those books is that there are these little little just kind of black and white drawings sometimes at the beginning of a chapter or the end. And I thought it would be kind of cool to do that. So, um, so I interviewed a couple of uh, young artists and I, I really liked Erin's work and um, she was great to work with. We would, uh, I would give her some ideas about what I thought the characters looked like and, and what, how the scene would look. And we went back and forth and, and I was really happy with how the, how the drawings came out. You know, and that's smart of you because there are so many books published every single day in the year. I mean, it, 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 years ago it was hard to get a book published. There was no self-published book. There was no Amazon, KDP, no Kobo, no Barnes & Noble publishing, uh, you know, where you could publish a book yourself without getting a literary agent, an editor, or going through the publisher. So it's hard to distinguish you need something a unique, something unique about your book to set it off from other books, and that's something those sketches that could set your book apart. So I think that's a smart move from a marketing standpoint uh, on your behalf. Can you introduce us to some of the other major and minor characters who helped to move the story presumed guilty forward? Sure. Um, so the the two prosecutors, um, there are. Um, uh, Two, two prosecutors in the case who were kind of the main the main force behind the investigation um, uh, and um, one of them is named Annie waters and um, the the uh, her sort of trial mate if you will um, is a guy called um, Ted uh, and they're sort of different personalities so um, Ted is kind of uh, very macho type. Um, he's really big into weightlifting. He's he's big. He's he's a handsome, very very ambitious guy. And he's sort of convinced from the beginning that Emma and others at the hedge fund have been doing things uh, that they shouldn't have been doing, and that they have to make a case. And he's very aggressive. And Annie is uh, sort of much more cautious. Um, personality she's a little bit more bookish um she clerked on the supreme court um and is kind of like i said a bit more bookish you know ted is much more of a flashy trial lawyer type and so we see some interesting interactions between the two of them and how they have you know some meetings with their supervisors who by the way are all men um and uh, which is pretty realistic, at least at, in the t- that time frame. And um, and we see some interesting interactions with them. Ultimately, Annie gets on board with the case, but I don't want to give away too much. But I th- I think there's some interesting dynamics, and that Annie is a very interesting character because she's a bit more conflicted about all of this than any of the other prosecutors. Mm. Now tell us about Emma and her husband Pierre. Is 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 their marriage? Is it a good one? And does does the trial start to put um, a lot of pressure on their marriage? Yes. So so at the beginning, yes, I think the marriage is a good one. But but there is um, there's some tension that rises to the surface um, as a consequence of the case and the trial and. Uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting about about the two of them is that when they decided to move upstate, Pierre, who had uh, for a while been a lawyer, and then he was uh, in, he, he but um, he'd always had a, a dream of of getting into the food business or the wine business, and so they decide that he's going to try to start a wine business at when they moved to um, Dutchess County, and. 
you know, we learn that not surprisingly that he's, they've had to, he's had to borrow a lot of money for this wine business, not really making any money yet. And Emma is the breadwinner. And I don't want to say too much more, but, you know, there's tension uh, builds a bit. Um, and one of the things I was trying to do with the novel also uh, was show how uh, these prosecutions can have an impact not only on the person who is accused of the crime, you know, who obviously in my story she's innocent, but, you know, you could have, uh, and most, most of the time you do have a guilty defendant, but to try to show how that impacts on other people in their family um, who obviously, whether the person is guilty or not, had nothing to do with any, and they're just sort of collateral damage to the impact the prosecution can have on on a person and, and people they're close to. So so that was part of what I was trained to do there. Mm. Are there plans to write a sequel to Presumed Guilty? So I definitely have been thinking about writing another book, and I'm uh, debating whether to write a sequel or possibly a spinoff where one of the characters, perhaps Annie Waters, becomes a more central figure um, but I haven't yet rested on, you know, where to go next with this. But I do. I would like to write another another novel. Is are you are you a are you going to be like a John Grisham? <laughs> well, that would be great. Oh my goodness! I don't know. Um, I don't know whether I, I will be so lucky as to have that much tremendous success and to be so prolific. Um, but I'm definitely interested in writing more and, and pursuing this, this uh, further. It is very challenging and it, you know, it was when I wrote the book, but it's, it's very challenging obviously to try to, uh, to write another book and while pursuing, you know, my career full time, which I'm still doing. So um, I'm still trying to balance that out and figure out when I'm going to have time to, turn my hand to another one, but I, I certainly hope to do that. And, and to your, that question you asked me much earlier about, you know, how you actually get yourself to, to do things that you want to do. I mean, I, I remind myself that I managed to write it, the first novel, so I'm gonna, there's got to be a way I can do it again. <laughs> now, you, you started your own uh, law firm, is, is that correct? You also, yes. I, I got to tell you, I, you know what? It's, it's the years, the 16-plus years I've been doing off the shelf, the people who with the busiest, most insane schedules, they get the most done. You ask them to volunteer to do something, or they do it. I, I don't know why that is. And it's the people with the less to do say they don't have time to do stuff. I, that has amazed me for years. I've interviewed people who are juggling so much. And as they say they need some done at a worship center, some done at a school, in the community, they step up and do it. And then somebody who's not doesn't have the, that crazy schedule, they say that person says they don't have time. I just find it <laughs> absolutely amazing. So you operating your own law firm, I just would think that it by itself would be more than enough. Where, where, where did you find the time to write presumed guilty? So, you know, I think I was lucky because I did the bulk of the first draft in, um, I think it was, the, you know, the first four to six months of 2021, and I was still working full-time, you know, from home under quarantine, but my practice was a little bit less busy than it normally is, partly because a lot of my work these days is doing appeals, and there weren't, so a lot of times I get cases after somebody loses a trial, and there weren't many trials, like sort of early in the pandemic. And so I had a little more time than I normally would. But I did mostly do the writing um, at nights and on weekends. Um, and that's definitely how I would how I would do it if I write another book. So, you know, um, but I agree with you. I mean, I think to get to have success, you've just got to be and, – and to pursue your passions, you, like I said earlier, I think you just got to put the time and the work in and, and, you know, find ways to – if you want to do something new and, you know, you can't do everything. No one can do everything. And so you have to figure out, you know, uh, where are you going to find the time and maybe that means you're not going to do some other activity, um, in a, you know, that, that, that you would normally want to do. And, 
I guess one other thing is I, I do have three children, but they're older now. I still have one, wow. but the other two have gone off. So it's a little, I have a little more time um, than I did when they were younger. And like all my quote unquote free time was, was really devoted to, to family and, and my kids. Um, so uh, that makes it a little bit easier than, than for younger people who are just starting a family. I got to ask you this. I'm thinking in my mind about so many mysteries where an attorney is involved in so many shows, and it seems like they work day and night on a case, like they don't even sleep. Is that is that what I see on the movies as far as the, the how much how many hours an attorney puts into a case where they're constantly pouring over information, getting going out looking for more evidence, working with the, these investigators. Is that the way it really is? Because I'm imagining you and I'm thinking, how in the world did you raise three kids? If, you, if it's really like it is on TV, is it really like that? Well, you know, what I find is that is that it kind of comes and fits and starts. And so, you know, if you're in the middle of a trial or a very intense investigation, it can be like that. I mean, obviously you have to sleep, but you, you know, you're working crazy hours and, um, you know, because, because you have to, but I think no one can really live like that, you know, throughout the year. So I think even the busiest attorneys, if they're, you know, that they have crazy hours during a trial or right, you know, preparing for trial. Um, and it is a kind of all consuming exercise. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, no. But then you know, you have a lull. The trial ends, and you know, you pick up the pieces, and you know, things slow down for a while. And um, one thing that that has happened over the course of my career is, as I've gotten kind of more senior as a lawyer, um, I've moved more in the direction of spending a lot of my time doing appeals. I still do investigations. I've done a few trials in the last few years as well but i would say probably you know 70 or 80 percent of my work these days is appellate work and that's a little bit um more conducive to having a life as well because you know um you have to spend a lot of time reading and writing um but uh usually have a longer period of time to to do the work and um, it's a little bit less intense in terms of you know 18-hour days for, like, weeks on end than if you're preparing for trial or you're go- going into trial where you just can't control all kinds of crazy stuff happens that you don't expect, and then that sends you off in another direction, whereas with appellate work, you know, it's it's just a much more clear task, and it's, it's unusual to have some unexpected development that's really going to throw everything off and send you off in another direction. Wow. What, what advice... As we come down to about seven minutes left in today's show, what advice? I mean, just your schedule, everything, and you sat down and you wrote "Presumed Guilty," and I hope you do become like a John Grisham, and I can say, "Oh, we had her on our show." What advice would you share with someone who is looking to write a novel for the very first time? So I would say a couple things. I mean, one is. Um, if you don't already do this, you should read a lot of fiction, particularly in the genre that you're interested in writing in, because um, it will give you ideas about um, how to write well, and you can get a sense of what's effective and, and what's not. Um, other th- another thing I would say is, you know, even though it's fiction, it's helpful to do research, especially if you're writing a story. Like in my case, obviously I'm writing about something I know a lot about, but even I found because I wanted to have my places and different, there, you know, different pop culture references and everything, I wanted to have them correct to the, the time frame, you know, that I actually spent, you know, more time than I would have expected on Google just checking things. But particularly if you're going to write fiction about, you know, something uh, – that that you like if you're going to write a legal thriller, but you're not, you haven't tried cases. You know, do research so you can try to make things seem authentic. And the last thing I would say is just 
um, it's important to have a community, get, have, get early feedback from readers, friends, family, whoever has the time um, that they can read early drafts of your scenes or your chapters. Um, it's really helpful because you may think, you know, you've written some really compelling scene and someone may come back to you and said, I really hated that character for this reason. And you thought, you know, that everybody would love the character. And so you think about how to change it to make the character more appealing or, you know, or vice versa. They say, I love that character. And we're like, wait, that's supposed to be the villain. <laughs> you know, so you get great feedback from readers um, along the way. Okay, now what writing process did you follow? Did you use character sketches, outlines, or did you just, some people just sit down and start writing? What was the process you followed to create Presumed Guilty? So I definitely used character schedule, character sketches, and I had, I didn't really outline anything about the plot, but I had sort of a, just a very rudimentary idea about the basic plot, but not a lot of ideas about the details, but I, I did start with character sketches, so I created them for, you know, Emma, the prosecutors, like most of the the characters that appear and, um, you know, what I, I would sort of jot down ideas about everything from, you know, what they look like, how old they are to different aspects of their interests and their personality and, you know, who's their family, what's their sort of, where are they in life, that kind of thing. And then, um, and then I basically wrote the book in scenes and I, uh, when I started out, it wasn't really so much in order of the plot. I think the first half of the book um, I wrote in the scenes just sort of as I got an idea for a scene, and then I figured out later what order to put them in and how to make them into chapters. The trial part I did kind of did kind of write in order, but I found I'm the I think every writer is different, but I'm the type of person who found that the writing process itself would give me all these ideas about a direction to take, you know, for instance, the dialogue, or I would get new ideas uh, as I was writing. And so, um, you know, for me anyway, it, it was easier not to sort of sit down and try to outline the whole thing before writing it. I found that it was more uh, helpful to do it the other way. Can you share three to four steps? that you've taken that you personally have found to be effective at getting the word out about presumed guilty? Sure. So, um, so one, the way, I guess what I found in terms of social media, for me at least, the most useful has been LinkedIn, which I hadn't really used much before. Ah. As a platform, I hadn't really done any posts, but I do have a lot of, because I'm, you know, in a profession, the law, I have a lot of connections. And so when I told, I announced on LinkedIn that I was doing this and then made various announcements along the way, that that was a great way to start some buzz going. Um, and uh, a couple of other things I've done, I reached out to some reporters that I knew and um, was able to get some uh early reviews in some good publications like Forbes and the New York Law Journal. And, um, and then I also looked into other uh, review sources like Kirkus Reviews and Publishers Weekly has this book life uh, reviews. And I was lucky enough, I sent them my book uh, to get positive reviews. And so I tried to, you know, get the word out about that. Um, uh, you know, and I, I think there are a lot of ways like that. And people who are much better with social media, I have a Twitter and an Instagram, um, but I haven't found those to be huge sources of generating uh, new interest in the book or sales. But I think people who maybe are are better at that can, or for instance, I, I don't have a TikTok, but I know some younger authors that I've met have found ways to like develop a following on TikTok that has helped them sell books. So I think there are a lot of different ways you can you can try to do it and then you know there's also the possibility of some paid advertising um uh i did a little bit of that i found that the amazon advertising uh was was pretty cost effective and helpful um but uh but i think there's a ton you can do with sort of free marketing and getting the word out and of course the other thing i've done is tried to reach out to folks like um you denise to see if people are interested in putting me on a podcast and i think that's helped build the audience as well 
Where can uh, off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of Presumed Guilty? So um, you can get it uh, at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Um, those are really the best sources. Um, it's also on Kobo, I believe. And, um, and I should mention that there's an e-book, and uh, very recently we launched an audio book as well for those who, who like that. I was going to ask you if it was available in an ebook. We are out of time. We are out of time, you guys. We have just what a what a pleasure. If you came in midstream or late, when the show finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it in its entirety as many times as you like. You can share it with other people so they can listen as well. We have had the absolute pleasure of having Alexander, Attorney Alexandra Shapiro, on this morning's off the shelf, and she is. In addition to being an attorney and running her, operating her own law firm and a wife and a mother, she's also the author of the novel Presumed Guilty. And you can learn more about her novel Presumed Guilty and Alexandra at her website, which is Alexandra Shapiro, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com. We want to thank Alexandra for being with us on Off the Shelf this morning and thank each and every one of you who tuned in today. And as always, set a, set a mark on your calendar that you're going to catch Off the Shelf Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, or some people, they, I just say New York City time. That's, if people don't understand the Eastern Standard, they know New York City time. So 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday mornings. Come back next Saturday. We'll have another awesome guest for you. Go out and get a copy of Presumed Guilty by Alexandra Sapiro. And, Alexandra, I'll send you an email with a link when the show finishes streaming. Thank you so much. You were an awesome guest. As I always tell all of you listeners, you're awesome. You're incredible. You are amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday. Bye for now. Thank you so much.